Human beings can survive quite a long time without food. For most of us, it's going to end up being 8 to 21 days. But for Scotsman Angus Barbieri, he was able to survive 382 days. Now, that was mostly because he was quite large. But on the other hand, when it comes to water, it doesn't matter how much food you have stored up, you can only survive roughly three days without our H2O sustenance. Thankfully, if you're listening to this, it's probably a pretty rare problem to run out of water if you ever run out of water. But you just walk into your kitchen, you turn on your faucet, and you can hydrate. You don't question where you're going to get your next glass of water and probably waste a little bit too much from day to day. But the flow of water is at the very foundation of our existence. It's the infrastructure we live on, and we probably don't appreciate that enough. Similarly, we don't appreciate the infrastructure it takes for our revenue to continuously flow into our business. The very thing that gives our businesses life is rooted in a system of plumbing that we take for granted, but if it turned off for even a day, most of our businesses would be in grave danger. No one understands the importance of keeping the flow of revenue moving than Christian Owens and Harrison Rose, who I affectionately call the Prince of SaaS both of whom co-founded Paddle nearly 10 years ago. Paddle is a revenue delivery platform that makes it easy to scale, compete, and operate your SaaS business. And I sat down with them in 2019 to talk through their journey and to discuss what they have learned along the way. If you're lucky, their wisdom will help you focus on what really matters and leave problems to someone else. All that and more coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Christian Owens and Harrison Rose of Paddle. We talk about their surprising founding story, the mortar between the bricks of SaaS, set of principles that are always true, solving problems so customers can focus on value, and saving the worry for the ones you haven't yet found. So why don't we do just like quick introductions, like who you are, where you've been, not where Harrison's been, because yeah, that's we don't want to know. I don't know if I can, it's, it's a family best. environment, so I don't yeah. know if I can say that. What in the world is Paddle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you go first? So I'm Christian, founder, CEO of Paddle, started the company with Harrison seven years ago. Feels like both a lot longer and a lot shorter at the same time. And we built a SaaS commerce platform to handle kind of everything from subscriptions, recurring billing, payments, taxes, all of that stuff for SaaS businesses. So you guys have been around for about seven years and then you ended up shifting because you were kind of riding the wave. And I don't actually know, like, was Paddle founded before you guys co-founded Paddle technically? Or was it like, yeah, how did this all, what's the I founding mean, story? Because I, I know you've talked about it, but it's kind of like, it's, it's a pretty interesting one, at least in my mind. Yeah, so I dropped out of school when I was 16. I was building software in my bedroom. Classic stereotype. I, I, I dropped out at 18, which I'm very proud of because it means I have more qualifications I think that's, than I, I don't think that's I called think, dropping out. I think that's yeah. called finishing school. I think you just finished school. What does that mean? <laughs> like, yeah. You just didn't um, go to university. That's it, really what that either means. Either way, more yeah. qualifications than this guy. Yeah. I know. Christian's a dum-dum. So yeah, I am. It's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, I own it. But So I dropped out. I was 16. Um, I was building a software company. Grew it to like three or four million in revenue. Basically found myself dealing with all of this other stuff that wasn't building a product and getting customers anymore. Became obsessed with this thing around how do we build customers. Spoke to loads of other software companies and none of them had a good answer. Like I initially went in, in search of a solution to buy 
Like I was just trying to buy a thing to solve my problems, couldn't find one. About the same time I met Harrison, hired somebody to run the other business. And then Harrison and I at 18, uh, on Mother's Day, we both moved out of our family homes and moved to London. Never do that. Thanks, mom. Never, never move out (laughs) on Mother's Day. Still haven't heard the end of that. Moved to London, started Paddle. Kind of you hadn't you hadn't met technically when no. you found it, right? We, no. We That's met, a nice little wrinkle to this story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We you were like internet friends. We'd worked year? remotely online for a year. As co-founders. No, no, no. So oh, um, like in the previous team. business, sort oh, okay. of it was my business, like was introduced to Harrison. Harrison sort of started working like part-time, like while he was in school on this thing. And then I was kind of like, I'm starting this thing, do you want to do it? Um, and it was the same day that Harrison was picking up his results from school. Didn't actually open them. It was an um, emotional roller coaster. Yeah, that was good. Was I think they're still in the car that I've since sold. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it was a yeah, we don't day. know. Forever a mystery. There when you, you go. when you get home and you're being asked, how was your results? How was your first day at school? Was that person actually a serial killer? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a, it was an intense afternoon for me. Happy Mother's Mother's family. Day. Yeah, not yeah, a serial yeah. killer. Um, <laughs> so we started paddle, moved to London. And the first day that we met was the first day in the office. Was that? I mean, you guys knew each other, right? We knew each other online. But was it? Have, have you seen each other? Like, had you no. Skype chatted or anything? Uh, have you not seen the Daily Mail articles of Christian? They're hilarious. Yeah. No, I haven't seen that. They're good. You should read those. Yeah, Please yeah, don't yeah. read those. Inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's wild. Yeah, that's interesting. But like the first time that we that we ever met was the first day in the office. That's cool. Harrison spent 20 minutes trying to turn his computer on, and it turns out it wasn't plugged in. And I was like, oh fuck, I've made a terrible decision. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, no founder dating or anything, just no. like jumping right in. No, I, I, to this day, I was very confused as to whether it was a screen or an iMac. I mean, I'm actually <laughs> the dumb dumb. Yeah, it was very old. Do yeah. you guys think about? So I know, and I joked about this before. Like, everyone writes about like you guys were your teenagers who started this company. First of all, being teenagers starting a billing company is like just weird, sexy, cool. right? right. Um, yeah. I mean. You don't have to be into B2C, but like the fact that you went not just for B2B, but infrastructure B2B is just, kind of, and not even like DevOps, right? Like that's where like some stuff comes from. We went full, to say, Patrick. We went full payments and taxes. Yeah, you went full, you went full like 45 year old, like founded company basically, yeah. which I respect. Maybe that's what this industry needed. Just <laughs> like some youth. Just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just throwing some shade. Jesus. Some of these other booths. You're not wearing Sorry. a blazer. So yeah. that's really what it comes wearing down this to. Fancy right? jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. You guys, I'm just super curious. This is probably not useful to anyone else. But you guys were always, like, talked about as, like, oh, these teenagers starting this company. You guys raised money. And that was, like, the center of a lot of that story. Like, when did that stop becoming, like, oh, that's really cool, like, and start becoming, like, annoying, like, I'm an adult. Treat me like an adult, not like a kid who started a B2B SaaS company. I'll let you know. Oh, is that what it is? No. (laughs) Like, I think, like, every almost... Every experience with that has been pretty positive. I think people come into a meeting with a certain expectation and then realize that we kind of know what we're talking about, which I think helps. Sort of, there have been like a handful of instances where like it's been me and like, or me and Harrison and then like our CFO in the room and like negotiating like a lease agreement or something on an office and they just refuse to address us. And then our CFO is just like, yeah, you need to talk to them about that. And then he'll be like, oh, and then it will like go over here again. But like, other than like instances like that, like universally pretty positive. Like, the, the only other times that it's been frustrating for me are it's like I'm getting gray hair at this point. Like I can't, people can't stop saying we're young. Like it's just embarrassing. I blame Christian entirely for those gray hairs. Right. And, and the other thing is, 
we're now actually powering so many incredible SaaS businesses yes. and are really core to the, to the way in which they're growing. Yeah. But like, I want to tell the story of how we've helped a customer just raise $20 million in funding and how they've been able to move up market due to yeah. our technology, not the fact that we were children picking a really sexy industry to work in seven yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. So that's the only frustrating thing, I guess. Cool. This is a dig at you as well, Patrick, by the way. That's no, all right. Okay. That's fine. You need to improve your interview tactics, man. Yeah, personally, I, this is why I have a beard. Because <laughs> when I started ProfitWell... I was in a, a, like, a pretty big company and their CMO, who was like a very pretty famous CMO, like, I started talking about the data and everything, and I did not get the, oh, you know what you're talking about. I got the, hold on a second, how old are you? And then the whole conversation just was terrible. Um, yeah, yeah. Celeste. But now I'm old enough, yeah. I'll probably start shaving, so we'll see about that. I think I like it. I know. Yeah, I, I like it. I do what I can. I feel yeah. like... I feel like I have a sticker of you that has a beard. Yeah. So, I, you so might it's have to permanent change. now. Yeah, you have to right? change this. It's totally permanent. And I know you guys, you're referring to a SaaS commerce, right? And yeah. you just mentioned billing. You just mentioned a bunch of other things. Like, what is, what is the difference between, like, billing versus SaaS commerce versus all the fun things? Like, because then you have payments in there, too. Like, what's... Where are we in this ecosystem, basically? Yeah. So there are a bunch of companies that do like recurring billing management, subscription management. We think the problem exists like slightly deeper than that. So a lot of people think about this as sort of subscription management, payments, and then all of the ancillary like kind of operational functions around that: um, taxes, compliance, risk, fraud, like all that stuff. We kind of think of it all as one. Sort of the way that you manage subscription billing is intrinsically tied to the way you manage payments, is tied to how you manage taxes, is fraud, is compliance. So we just think that this whole stack exists as one thing and we call it SaaS commerce. I think the really important thing about SaaS commerce is if, if you're doing that well, it should be not infrastructure you have to have in order to sell your product globally or be compliant. If you're doing this stuff well uh, and using best in class or using best practice, it should be a means to accelerate growth as well. And we're really trying to upskill every single software company using our platform with all the tools they need in order to sell to who they want, how they want, without there being any blockers to, to what it is they, how they want to go to market, I guess. But that is inherently incredibly difficult, right? Because there are companies that are 100% dedicated just on the payment side. There are companies 100% dedicated in the recurring billing. And then there's a fragmented list of companies that are dedicated to different pieces of accelerating commerce, right? And so where does the need or where does the innovation or where does just the let's just say the, the confidence come from in order to add all those things up? Is it just the right time for it where infrastructure is in a good place? Is it, hey, we don't care how hard it's going to be? Is it a combination of everything? Like, how do you guys think about that? So I think it's a couple of things. I think one, we don't care how hard it's going to be. Like, we're going to build the best product um, that we can regardless of how much effort it is. I think there's this other piece which is like when you're building one of these component parts of this stack. If you're building a component part, you immediately have to go really, really wide. Like you have to go really broad because you have to build a business that's been right. So it means that you only end up so solving this like lowest common, de common denominator set of problems for any of these businesses. So if you're building the payments layer, it's the payments layers for SaaS, but it's also the payments layer for how you buy like a mattress like online. So and then you think of that, it multiplies itself at each layer. So the tax engine, the fraud engine, the subscription billing management is subscription billing management is very different if you're selling SaaS to if you're selling like subscription like boxes of like dog treats or like whatever it is. And like because like you have with SaaS you have your international immediately, you don't have returns, like you don't have logistics and delivery and stock management and things like that. So we very much think that like 
how do we solve the full set of problems that exist for SaaS businesses as they start, grow, and scale their business internationally? Because I think the thing to add is each one of those products are great products, and they're very good at doing what they're doing. The, the thing that we want to avoid is that if you walk up to 10 different SaaS businesses, every single one of those SaaS businesses has implemented that same similar set of tools in a very similar way. Um, they're adjusting it all the time. They're terrified it's going to fall over. And if we can avoid SaaS businesses all trying to do the same thing over and over again, um, that'll be a great thing. Yeah, the way that we kind of think about it is like you look at a wall, like a brick wall, and like each one of these tools are bricks. Like the actual value doesn't come from the bricks, it comes from the mortar between the bricks. Like what's the stuff, the glue that holds all this together? And we think of ourselves as sort of the value that we add is this mortar between. It's like the mesh that, that holds all this stuff together. And like you can't have a whole wall without either of those things. We just think that you should like have yeah. a wall rather than a pile of bricks. Well, and at some stage, a SaaS company will have a tool for every single one of those problems, whether it's tax fraud, etc. And as they evolve and scale, they keep adding to this disparate set of tools they've cobbled together. And for us, it's from day one, we'd rather just give you that full set of technology and the ability to go to market how you want rather than you having to stumble around when it's too late because you need to invoice a customer for the first time in a new geography for the first time. We'd rather just out of the box, you have the ability to invoice that customer in a compliant way because we've already set up that infrastructure for you. You sell to the customers that want to buy rather than like rebuilding the infrastructure to do this every time you want to move geo or size a customer or whatever it is. But this naturally constrains a lot of things like with you guys, right? Because all of a sudden you're constraining yourselves not just on a revenue model, but also a vertical, right? So like B2B SaaS specifically for the most part, right? And I know you have a lot of legacy customers on other things, right? But so you're not only constraining that, but then you're also constraining kind of the, just by the nature of time, like the spread that you can have, right? So if we go all the way up to the mezzanine part of the market, you have, you know, Zora who like pretty much will build anything that their customer needs, right? And you guys, like, that's a, that's a little bit of a trap, right? Because then all of a sudden, like, you start to, like, spread everything out too much. So how do you kind of manage these constraints while also then having constraints on, like, go-to-market and things like that? Like, is it, it doesn't matter, we're just going to, like, religiously focus on these constraints and then we'll expand when we need to? Like, how do you think about that? Like, I guess it's not even a dichotomy. Multichotomy? I don't think that's a word, but we'll go for it. It's early. Yeah. I think it's religiously focus on the constraints and expand when you need to. I think I would much rather be build a big, like a, a valuable product that dominates like a vertical than a slightly less valuable product that just about survives yeah. across everybody. You're talking about the problem. Like all of one of those disparate sets of tools is trying to be everything to everyone. Yeah. Uh, and then industries or verticals will implement them all in the same way. Um, they don't do that very well. They're not utilizing the full the feature set of those tools. So if we focus on just SaaS businesses, we can build the best-in-class product for those people utilizing all the technologies we, that they normally we, integrate. We can also do this thing that you're talking about, which is the needs of a SaaS business. Like They might have a very specific set of feature needs that isn't going to be addressed by any one of these other kind of competitors because... Okay, SaaS is 10% of our business. Why would we invest in that like really deep, rich set of functionality for SaaS businesses? But we don't have to make that choice because they're our only customers. Do you think about like from your perspective as you're building out, because the stack is like theoretically has so many different parts, even if you're super, super focused. Like if we one click down into the company, the product team, the engineering team, how do you manage like 
those kind of constraints, right? Because if you think about, you know, there's the, I, I don't know how you structure the team and maybe that's a good way to start this, but like, if you think about, well, there's the payment person or the payment team, right? And he or she who's leading that team is always going to be maybe going after the infrastructure there when maybe they should be thinking about the outcome, which is the ultimate goal of Paddle as a whole. Like, how do you kind of manage that internally when there's like all those different moving parts and presumably those multiple different products? Yeah. So I think that there's like two parts to this. Like one is how do we solve the ultimate value that the customer wants? And that's one problem. And then two, sort of there are always going to be this set of things that are always going to be true. Like, and we think of some of these things in a way of like, you take like the Amazon example of like, like Jeff Bezos has quoted saying like many, many times that the more that we invest in like sort of delivery speed, no one's ever going to complain that they got a package too quickly. And we feel very similarly about a lot of this like low level infrastructure stuff. Like no one is ever going to complain that their payment acceptance is too high or their churn is too low or sort of any of these things. So we can make consistent and constant investments in those things and have a core team of people who really love like optimizing for those things. And like that's the foundation that we start from. And then we build all the other functional areas of the business on top of that. And then on top of that, we layer in, okay, exactly how do these businesses want to run? What are the things that they want to do that they're currently unable to do or they're kind of limited by their tool set or the kind of scope of work that they'll need to do in order to do these things? So we start with this lowest possible layer of how do we be the best in the world at X? And X is fundamentally like payments, billing, recurring billing management, and things like that. And then it's how do we layer all this stuff on top? There's no investment that we make in like payment acceptance or international payment acceptance or currencies or any of these things that's ever going to be a bet. Yeah. I, I'm not going to tell you anything new, but obviously everything that you're doing needs to align to what your initial vision was, right? You'll have heard this a thousand times. And we fundamentally believe that in using Paddle, we can help businesses better both run and grow. And by run, it's removing all of this operational burden out of billing, as Christian's saying. And you can't really make stupid bets there because everyone wants more currencies, payment methods, for tax to be handled for them. And then on top of that, if this infrastructure we can supply helps them grow revenues, again, no one's going to be disappointed or frustrated by those things. So as long as everything that we're doing is doing one of those two things, either making their life easier from an operational perspective or actually growing their revenues, hopefully we're along the right yeah. tracks. It's, idea it's fundamentally how do we decouple the idea of making a business decision from making an infrastructure one. Mm -hmm. So so often those two things are tied. Like it makes it makes smart business sense for us to be in Germany as a market, but it makes not smart infrastructure sense for us to go and have to build out all of the tooling to support Germany. So like how do we just remove that like that latter part of the decision so that when it makes sense for you to be in Germany, you're in Germany. Like because it's already there for you to go. Yeah. And when you think about even like prioritizing product, engineering, even sales, right? Are you, are these all on parallel paths? Like these different pieces of the mortar, different pieces of the stack? Or is it, hey, like payments is in a good place right now. It can sit for six months. Now we're gonna like focus on our internationalization features versus, you know, a whole host of things that there could be. They're on a parallel tracks and we're working on all of these things concurrently with the exception of the fact that there is this core set of infrastructure that we're always constantly improving. Like we're never gonna let payments sit there for six months. There's always investments to be made there. We might kind of scale up and scale down resource in that kind of core area of the business, especially when it's like PSD2 comes about. Okay, you scale up resource in the billing area of the business. And, and then, then they move up. the deadline on you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Plus two years. And then you're like, oh, cool. And do you think about, like, does that, because prioritization in product is so hard. And like what we found being multi-product, you guys are multi-product as well. Like, 
it's, it's one of those things where it's so hard to, sometimes to choose which darling you're going to focus on with your limited resources, even if you've, you know, spun up a really big team or have lots of like cash. And is there any advice that you have there on like how to prioritize? I think a real benefit we have is that we work with some really smart SaaS companies at, at C-level. Um, normally they're swapping over to us from the horrible state that they got themselves in from a billing perspective. They normally have a pretty good idea as to how they want to be going to market as well. Um, and being able to have direct conversations with these people about the challenges they have can really inform what it is that we're doing. And we're quite lucky to be able to have just have those direct conversations and direct feedback with people and for them to tell us directly, like, we're trying to move up market. Here's all the problems that we're having. Can you solve these for us? Certainly helps us. Um, but we're, and we're pretty obsessive about our customers and what it is that they need. I think if you're a B2C product, dealing with masses and masses of users is a completely different approach, but we've always benefited from that. I don't know, I don't know what you think. I think consistency and customer base is helpful. Yeah. Kind of deliberately selling to the same types of businesses or the same challenges makes prioritization a lot easier because hopefully they need the same things. I also think that it's like an 80-20 thing of like listen to the customer, but then also make sort of yeah. strong opinionated bets about things. Like there's some stuff that doesn't make sense right now yeah. to prioritize, but you have to prioritize, otherwise it'll never get done and you'll never like progress towards this higher level kind of thinking, vision, like whatever that you want to get to. So I think there's a healthy balance needed between those two things of like, how do you track a line to where you want to go? So really it comes down to agonize, scrutinize, <laughs> have somewhat of a squinted vision that you can go to and Something then just blurry. make a decision. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. It's super tough because there's always, I mean, hindsight's always going to be 2020, and probably if you agonize, you're not going to make like, like a wrong decision. There might be a more optimal decision, but you're not going to know make that a decision. Time. Yeah, exactly. We're working with this with our exec team. It's like if we're sat around this table and debating A or B for 25, 30 minutes, neither of them is going to be wrong. Like they're both going to benefit us, and let's just go with it because spaces yeah. is much worse. Totally. And you guys are, I don't know if you would call yourselves this, but you're like a disruptor in this world, mainly because I think you're changing, you have a different paradigm for what like this infrastructure should look like. And I'm curious, when you're talking to leads and you're, you're converting customers, where does that like position as a different paradigm hurt you and when does it help you? Probably especially in your target customer, actually. I think hurt us certainly in the, the like market understanding perspective there's like a lot of education in the cell and it's also like getting people comfortable with this is a different way to run the business like this is you don't have to build out certain teams anymore like kind of that's a big shift for a lot of companies especially if they're further down this this track than than others i think it helps us in almost every other way because we can attribute the value that we had yeah we're, we're pretty confident in the bets that we're making to the extent we play a game with the vcs that we chat to which is like most customers we talk to about what it is that we're doing have never heard of our way of operating or the way in which we think software businesses should be run, which is a challenge. But Christian's saying requires a lot of education. But the game we play with VCs is go and speak to every single one of your software companies. And I bet you, when you explain to them what it is that we do, every single one of them will say, oh my God, I wish I knew about this before I started because there's no way I'd have tried to do this stuff myself or couple of this stuff together. And we play a bet with them. This is like nine out of 10 companies will say those exact words, um, which gives us a lot of confidence. And when you find, though, because that's it's a little bit of a blessing or a curse, right? Because when you think about, like, a lot of your target customers, like, if, if we were starting, like, fresh, like, oh, yeah, all things considered, but normally you don't have that wisdom when you're, like, starting off, right? But you're talking to a lot of people that 
now they might need to consider firing Joe or Judy, who leads up this part of the team or something like that. And they have to go convince their product team to go through an implementation that took six months. And you're going to tell them it's only going to take a month, but they're not going to believe you because yeah. that's what the former salesperson at XYZ yeah. Company yeah. said. Like, how do you think so about that? There's two things in that. One, I start with the product one. On the product side of things, it's, yeah, this thing that you thought was going to take three months took six, and this one's going to take one. But then it's also, by that point, if they're past the implementation, they understand the incremental cost of work that they're having to do in order to change this and kind of upgrade it. Every time commercial team wants to change pricing, how much work is that that we have to do? So there's actually slightly more, like we started, when we started the business, we were only selling to CTOs. We weren't, we weren't selling to finance people, we were selling to CTOs because they've been through this pain and they've realized how much of a pain it is, not just upfront, but incrementally over time. And yeah, no one's underestimating the cost of switching. Like, it is a cost, but it's sort of what's the aggregate cost over time. And then on the second point, Judy, who, like, we're thinking of firing because she's... Uh, or Judy. Yeah. Or Joe. Yeah. Or, Joe. <laughs> or Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe um, and Judy are Joe and Judy. messed up. But, like, the thing there is, in most of these businesses, this isn't anyone's full-time job. This is the third job that six people do kind of evenings and weekends because they don't have any other time because the company won't invest in it. So it's like we help Joe and Judy do that actual job yeah. rather than all of this other stuff that, that's causing pains in the other areas of the business. I, I can't emphasize enough that Judy should just should probably just be spending her time on doing things that are going to drive more more value to the business, That things that she shouldn't have to be doing. Oh, sorry, doing the things that she has to do as opposed to the things that she's forced to do. the to meaningful do. things. Exactly. Yeah. And then linked to that, we've been thinking a lot about given that we're working with existing customers with a lot of legacy code and infrastructure, yeah. how, how do we make it make sense for them to rip that current infrastructure out and, re and, and replace it with Paddle? And to Christian's point, we find it really, really easy to tell software companies that you shouldn't be doing this stuff and it's loads easier with Paddle and they agree with us, right? But the hard bit then is convincing them that now is the right time for them to do so. But to Christian's point, when we talk to them about what their go-to-market plans are or how they expect to grow over the next 12 months and educate them on how this problem's only going to get worse and how you're going to keep tacking on tools to this stuff, which, which means that before this gets infinitely worse, make your swap now because not only are you going to remove all the burden that you know exists today, you're going to avoid all the burden that's going to come in the future. And if we're doing our job right, we're going to actually be able to allow you to accelerate the speed at which you're going to be able to go to market or, or deliver upon those goals as well. It's kind of how we're thinking about it. And I think like the big thing there is it is reasonably unprecedented for these companies to rip and replace all of those things at the same time. But it's not unprecedented to every 12 months swap out a component. Like when you go to a different market or the underlying customer base changes or, or you just outgrow a, a specific component that you're working with or add to it over time as well. So actually they're doing, they're doing constant continuous work on this stack of things that they're using anyway. And actually the incremental work in order to swap out one thing as opposed to swap out all of the things is yeah. about the same. Do you think about, I, I don't know if you have any benchmark data for this, but presumably, would you argue that your sales cycle is shorter or longer than like a traditional like billing management system? Because the reason I'm asking is because in some ways it's like, oh, you're selling me value, you're gonna make me more money, you're not just gonna be infrastructure, and the infrastructure is gonna be easy, let me sign up right away. On the other hand, it's like, I don't understand it, you know, even though it's like perfectly yeah. clear to us, but it's like, wait, I got this, why yeah. do I need you? Like, this doesn't I mean, make any sense. I mean, I have no idea of the sales cycles of other billing management companies. It takes us about 55 days, so. Well, now we have a benchmark, yeah. and we'll go find out the go. other benchmarks. Yeah, that's yeah, your yeah, job. Yeah, yeah, that's my job.
one of the coolest things I think about you guys, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit here, is you kind of go the next step where you can actually kind of prove out you, by the changes you requested or the changes that you actually implemented, made a company like 30 million more dollars or something like that. You were telling me about an anecdote um, like a few weeks ago, actually, like, Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Like, tell me a little bit about those companies, like what you typically help them with, you know, through the software. Um, sure. We've, we spent a long time looking at the different ways in which SaaS companies grow, basically. And we put together a thing called the SaaS Commerce Report that I hope people download. But it's looking at what's true of the most successful SaaS companies out there. And like, the way in which SaaS companies are growing aren't news to any of us. It's they're really successful internationally, they can move up market, maybe they have a great self-serve billing model which is filling the top of funnel, all of these things that we know and love. And it's just thinking about how we can allow people to execute upon those things more effectively um, or give them the infrastructure to be able to do those things in the first place. But the long-term vision for ours being similar to that which you guys do at ProfitWell, which is we have so much data and we see so many SaaS businesses running and being successful or unsuccessful, truthfully, we can just tell them what, what to do. Like, this is the time for you to go out market based on the amount of individual users at a, a business or an enterprise using your product. You should think about bundling these individual users into a team plan. It's serving up these types of suggestions to businesses to actually help them and inform their go-to-market strategy. Yeah. And then because of, and then that, and then internationalization and pricing and all of these things, but like because of the way that we charge, because we fundamentally, we take payments, we're a payments revenue based model and we charge a payment fee, not a SaaS fee. It means that like our success is intrinsically tied to the value of the advice that we give. If we give some advice and the numbers go up, we make money. If we give some advice and the numbers go down, we lose money. Like sort of the trust that we're able to build in a relationship with a customer by being like the sole success of you as a customer mm -hmm. of like mm -hmm. our customer, mm -hmm. like in terms of the revenue that we make from you is directly tied to how successful you are. It means that sort of we just remove that barrier. We're never giving some advice that's in trying to encourage yeah. them to get more seats or like move to the, the enterprise plan. Like, you, you must see this as retained too, right? Like by the, like, because you're literally aligned to the value that you're delivering. And equally, once you've made the, the fifth suggestion on pricing or how they should change the, the length of their trial or how they should consider moving into China based on the data that we're seeing, once they've seen that work three times, they're just hungry for more, yeah. Last couple of questions. What's something that you struggled with that you overcame and, and how did you overcome it? This is Not good. as a unit, as yeah. separate. Well, we did used to live together for a while. So How that did was, that work out? That was a struggle. We had one bathroom and he had that hair. So I took the cat. Yeah, he did take the cat. <sighs> yeah, we the talked about you separation. being a cat person. Yeah. yeah. Christian and I, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, what do you think? I think sort of mine is like a two-parter same thing. It's sort of, I, we both started this business when we were 18. We'd started, I guess, businesses before, but not companies. And like... We had no idea what good looked like, but we also had no idea what bad looked like in terms of how to build a culture, how, culture, how to hire people, how to build a team. So a lot of that stuff was trial and error. Um, and I think knowing what advice to listen to and what advice not to, I think is like really, really difficult. It's like the first time around. We made a bunch of mistakes on the hiring side. We made a bunch of like, we, made, we went up against a bunch of people's advice and it turned out really well. Um, and it's sort of like, how do you find that balance between what to listen to and what not? And, the kind of the actual answer to that question is listen to everybody and then make your own decision and sort of like and there were some like really funny examples of like stuff that we did wrong like we thought we'd invented like like a tradition like a sales process like we thought like SDRs were our idea and it turns out like we could have just read like two blog posts and like saved a year and a half but like it's like that kind of thing is being like a first like 
first-time founder is, is sort of knowing what to read, what to listen to, what to actually digest, but like pull in as much information as you can and then make your own call. Um, there's always so many fires, Patrick. Why do I start? I don't know. These are personal fires, Yeah, but, but, but this, is, this is a good thing. I are think. you saying you're a hot buttered mess? Is that what I'm hearing? Say that again. Are you, being, are you a hot mess? Is that what you're telling always. us? No. Okay, um, there you go. Harrison I, wears an Apple Watch and his resting heart rate is like 160. Yeah, it's terrifying. So you're a hummingbird. I've been yeah, checked yeah, yeah. many times. Everyone's very confused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think for me, it is linked to this point, though. I think having never done this before, it can sometimes feel overwhelming how many things there are that need to be improved or are available to be improved or issues that are taking place. And that can get overwhelming for anyone, especially when you've not done this before and you're not necessarily sure what's normal. I think and that time, that time's going to get any founder down. I think. I think we've all probably been there. I think the way I've tried to overcome this and some really great advice I've had in the past is like turn that on its head and instead be really, really happy that you've identified a problem, you have a plan to fix it, you're executing upon that plan to fix it and you've got the order in which you're going to start working on the next six rather than being overwhelmed and worried by the fact there's so many things that need to get better, you need to improve. Instead, take pride and be excited about the fact that you've identified the things that need to get better and you have a plan to fix them. And that really changes the mindset from, oh my God, the whole world is crumbling around me to like, we're getting better all the time and we're going to keep getting better and, and continue to win. Yada, yada, yada. Save the worry for the ones that you haven't yet found. Exactly. Yeah. Don't cry over spilt milk. Many anecdotes or idioms, sorry. That's good. One of those. Yeah, one of those. What's something that you're both still struggling with? Still struggling with. Yeah, that you have yet to overcome. like managing time, prioritization, understanding like what's the most valuable thing that I can allocate time to is still... And also like being comfortable with like removing yourself from a situation and being like, it's going to be okay. Like the difference between being a 15, 20 person company and a 170 person company is very, very different. And like getting that balance right between sort of what do I spend time on, what do I not, what do I trust people with, what do I still want to have a handle on, kind of that whole mix of things I find still to be reasonably challenging. Uh, for me, knowledge share. Like there's generally ongoing running jokes in our company that like I take people into rooms, throw 10 million words at them in about 30 minutes, draw 75 diagrams on a whiteboard, um, give them all, all the things and a thousand page words of notes afterwards and then people don't get it and I'm like what the hell guys like I told you all the things like surely you can take this away and um, that's even if we've read it down or even had the chance to have that conversation in the first place like knowledge share at scale is something that I think is really really hard and I'm yet to speak to loads of people who've done that really well particularly when in like 2018 we went from 20 to like 120 or whatever the numbers were and when there's more new people in the room than old like being able to operationalize knowledge share effectively is something I'd love for us to keep getting better at. A huge shout out to Christian and Harrison for doing the podcast. Today we talked about their surprising founder story, the mortar between the bricks of SaaS, a set of principles that are always true, solving problems so customers can focus on value, and saving the worry for the ones you haven't yet found. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we would appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and, you know, we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. Thank you.